I'd like to say on behalf of my brothers, Robin, Gibb, thank you very much. And Morris, Morris Gibb over here. Our new drummer, Mr. Jeff Bridgeford, thank you. Our lead guitarist, Alan Kendall. And this beautiful orchestra. Lovely. And our musical director, you can always pick him by his cigar smoke, travels with us everywhere, Mr. Bill Shepard.
Hello and welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was the Bee Gees to Love Somebody live at Festival Hall in Melbourne, Australia from July 1971. And you may have heard Barry there introducing the group and the then new member of the Bee Gees, Jeff Bridgeford, who I've got here today to discuss his time in the Bee Gees, some of the bands that he was in in Australia, the groove which Jeff was in, and there's a wonderful new compilation of the group that I want to discuss later. We'll be covering all Jeff's time in the Bee Gees and what he did after the Bee Gees and uh, some of his really excellent solo material. A huge welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Jason. Nice to be here. We'll be focusing on the Bee Gees a bit later. Just thought that opening with that track was quite fitting. Am I right in terms of your status with the Bee Gees that you were the last non-Gib brother to be an official Bee Gee? Yeah, that's right, yeah. After I left, they became three brothers, and um, in a way it was always just meant to be, as history will show, you know, that it really was just the three brothers who were the Bee Gees. Even in the early days, I think that... um, they wanted to have a band. They wanted to sort of be like the Beatles and all of that stuff. But really, they'd been doing it for a decade or so before they arrived in London. And um, and uh, it always just seemed like to me, and I was familiar with them in Australia when they were just the, the three brothers. And um, it always seemed like it was just meant to be the three brothers, and that's how it ended up being. But I was quite surprised when they asked me to become a member of the band, to be honest. It was a bit of a shock. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. We'll cover some of that later. What I have realised is, certainly in terms of groups that have an Australian connection as well as a New Zealand connection, is a lot of the musicians, a lot of you knew each other, you went in and out of bands. There was often times when groups would come over to London and England as well, and and you're no exception. And interestingly, um, in terms of our next song, which is now Moulder by Stephen the Bard, am I right that you took Colin Peterson's place in Stephen the Bard? That's right, yeah. Colin was leaving the group to go to England and um, I can't remember what the situation was really. something to do with an acting career as well because he'd done an acting film in Australia. Yeah, it was a very interesting moment. I'd been playing in a couple of local bands and uh, had a job working in the city in Melbourne as an office boy for for an advertising company and I used to go to a, a record store in Melbourne called Allen's Music. Uh, I used to go there every lunchtime and uh, I sort of befriended some of the girls who worked in the store. And in those days, they had listening booths <laughs> where you could go and listen to the latest singles and latest music that was coming out. And Allen's Music Store is where I'd purchase a drum kit. So it was just a place that I would regularly visit. And I remember one day, uh, one of the girls behind the counter said, uh, you're a drummer, right? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, are you looking to, what are you wanting to do as a drummer? I said, well, I'd like to be a full-time musician. And she said, I go to this uh, club. It's a lunchtime club. It was just a couple of streets up. It was called 10th Avenue. And she said, I was there today and there's this group called Stephen the Board. And the singer said um, they were looking for a drummer. And if anybody knew a drummer, I'd let them know that we're looking for a drummer. And she said, uh, as a matter of fact, they got a record that's number four in the Melbourne charts at the moment called The Giggle Like Goo. <laughs> and I said, what a strange, what a strange title for a song. And uh, I said, give us a listen. So she played it for me. And uh, it was an unusual song, but it, it really definitely had something and something that had made it uh, popular to be number four. But it was the guitarist, the sound of the guitars that really uh, knocked me out. They were 
kind of punky and rocky and I thought I'd go up and um and, and check them out. So I went up there and walked in and the place was full and the girls were screaming and yeah. and during a break I, I went to the little backstage area they had and I said I said, Hey guys, um I heard that you're looking for a drummer and uh they said, Yeah, we are and uh Collins, our drummer at the moment, he's gonna be leaving at the end of this week. And um I said, Well, I'm a drummer and I'd like to have a shot at it, you know. So Steve said, okay, we'll get you up in the next set. So they got me up in the next set and uh, we played a song called Gloria, which was by a group called Them. Yeah. It was a very popular, very popular song at the time. Uh, it was a song that everybody played, everybody knew. All the bands knew it and all the audience people knew it. And So that was an easy one to pull out to play and um, we played that. And uh, at the end of that, uh, Steve said to the audience, said, well, this guy was just auditioning to be our new drummer. What does everybody reckon? And everybody sort of screamed. And Steve just turned around and said, okay, mate, you're in. <laughs> and that's how it happened. That's how I came to join Steve and the board and things changed for me at that point in time. You were discussing before about the interrelationship with musicians, mm. but the other aspect is the interrelationship with members of the Bee Gees as well. Mm. Now I'm Older, which I referred to before, which is the Stephen the Bard song. I think, was that the first song that you were on? Yeah, that was the first song I recorded with Stephen the Bard. And uh, yeah, Stephen the Bard was signed because of the relationship that Steve had with his father, Matt Kipner, who was actually, I think, wrote to Giggle Eyed Goo, he'd sort of organised himself to have a, an off-spinning record label for EMI in, in, in Australia called Spin Records. And he'd actually signed up the Bee Gees to Spin Records and Steve and the board were, were signed to Spin Records as well. So we were sort of stable mates. And um, I sort of vaguely recall when, whenever we were in Sydney, we'd always bump into the Bee Gees. And I remember going to the house where they lived in Sydney and hanging out with them. But uh, on the on that session with Now I'm Older, Morris was at the studio the day we recorded that, and um, he sang in the bridge of that song. That's Morris Gibb in there. Just used to bump into the Bee Gees. I can't say we were we were super close or super friends. I think that Steve and Carl, who had more of a relationship with the brothers prior to me joining Steve and the board, because the board had been going about a year or something before I I got involved. And uh, the Bee Gees had actually recorded one of Carl Grossman's songs, the guitar player and Stephen the Board. Stephen the Board had recorded a Bee Gees song called, I think it was called Little Miss Rhythm and Blues for the Stephen the Board album. Oh, yeah, I know that. I didn't play on the Stephen the Board album, but they still hadn't shot the cover, the photo for the cover for the album. So Colin had left and then we did a photo session and I'm, I'm on the front cover of that Stephen the Board album, but I didn't play on that album. I just played on the couple of singles that followed um, the release of that album. That's sort of where the tie-up was with the Bee Gees, really. It was just a, a connection that, that had happened through uh, through Nat Kipner and his involvement with EMI and Spin Records. You know, they're just stablemates, both bands.
some songwriting talent in the band, Stephen the Board, because when you look at the members of the group, you've got Carl Grossman, and he wrote Down the Dust Pipe, which is a big hit for Status Quo, and then obviously you've got Steve Kipner, who wrote for uh, Olivia Newton-John and, and much more. Mm. Yeah, he went on to be... Well, they both were brilliant songwriters. It was a, a great situation to get involved in Stephen the Board and play with those guys because... It was basically, I'd been playing in cover bands and um, before that, and uh, Stephen the Board were a totally original band, and uh, it was such a good influence. And, uh, yeah, Carl went on to uh, to be signed up by Ringo Starr for Ringo Records and uh, wrote a, a single for Ringo, which he released, and also the, the Down the Dust Pipe for the, uh, for the Status Quo Band, which was a, a great song. And uh, and Steve just uh, was ended up being an incredibly good songwriter, a successful songwriter, and he was in, incredibly encouraging to me to write songs and to take that uh, take that look at things musically, you know, and uh, especially when I got involved in, in Tintin later on with Steve and, and Carl. But uh, yeah, they both ended up being um, very successful songwriters in their own right, those two guys. And I also referred to the new compilation of The Groove. So tell us about the formation of The Groove. Stephen the Board had been going about a year. It was just one of those serendipity moments for me that Stephen the Board were living together in a in a little house in, in Melbourne. And um, so I got a knock on the door and it was the, a guy called Gary Spry who was a manager. He was managing what was going to be happening with uh, with The Groove. And he'd formed this band called The Groove with uh, Tweed Harris, who was a keyboard player from Adelaide who had been playing in a quite successful jazz soul outfit around the traps in Melbourne called The Clefts. And Peter Williams, a singer from New Zealand who had been playing with a pretty successful band called Max Merritt and the Meteors. And Rod Stone, a guitarist from a New Zealand band called The Librettos, where they were pretty popular. But those three guys turned up with Gary Spry to my door and said, uh, we're looking for a drummer and uh, we're going to form a super group. And <laughs> they said, yeah, we're going to be the biggest band in the country in six months' time. Do you want to get in? So I said, sure, why not? <laughs> so that was that was my introduction to the boys in the groove. And um, the next day we were rehearsing. And the first batch of singles by the groove, there was quite a few soul covers and Soothe Me was one of the big early hits for the group as well. So was that something that you and the band members of the group really aimed for, which is a more soulful sound? Yeah, that was... At the time in Melbourne, you know, a lot of the... From the British music of invasion that came with the Beatles and the Stones, it was interesting what came with them was all this um, all this influences of uh, the, the American soul, blues, uh, the black R&B music, the Beatles and the, the Stones were so into that. So that, they unearthed this whole genre, this whole mode of music. And the boys in the group, Peter Williams and Max Brown, the Meteors, they'd been doing a sort of soulful thing. And Tweed uh, in the Clefts had been doing a, a very similar sort of thing. But it was, a, it was a, a massively inspiring introduction for me to the music from the Stax label, the Motown label, R&B blues, a whole American influence to be doing songs, you know, released by the Isley Brothers and um, Sam Cooke, I think, did suit me. And we ended up doing um, some amazing songs that 
took me into a whole new genre of, of music and a style of playing, which made the groove incredibly popular. They weren't a strong original band at that point in time, but uh, we made it on the success of on the riding on the tails of the on the shoulders of these other great artists from America. Really, it was an interesting phase for me because um, I remember Tweed Harris. He was sort of into the into the sort of semi jazz sort of style of soul and and R and B that kind of thing. And I think there's a, a track that he actually sang on the the groove album called Gomba Mojo Working and sort of a semi-jazz instrumental. Uh, he was really into the organ, and that was uh, part of also the groove's, the groove's style. But I remember in the first first few rehearsals that um, we did with the groove uh, in this little club in Melbourne, and uh, the bass player was a guy called Jamie James Byrne, who was playing in a sort of a punky... I don't know much about him, but uh, he was playing in a band called The Running, Jumping, Standing Still, and he became bass player. I remember Tweeds, one of the most important things that Tweed said is that we've got to get this Motown thing get down, you know. And he used to keep us after rehearsal. And he used to say the most important thing is just to get into the feel. You know, you don't have to be clever. You don't have to be technically fancy or this or that. He said, you just got to find the groove and lock in and um, and sit on it and learn to move a little bit le- a little bit left and a little bit right with it. And for a, about a half an hour after every rehearsal, we used to sit on this Motown, which was a sort of a powerful groove. Uh, it was a common general sort of style of the Motown sound. There's many, many songs that were done with this sort of style. Mm. The simplicity in finding something in, in some of the, the music um, that I eventually just totally fell in love with. To soothe me, baby. 
What is Soul is a great example of something more ambitious. Quite a run of hit singles over in Australia. And I think by 1968, you were in the top echelons, the ranks of, of, of great groups like the Twilights and Masters Apprentice. Yeah, well, they were right when they came to my door and asked me to join and, and said, we're going to be the biggest band in the country in six months' time. And we were. <laughs> and then we entered this national Battle of the Bands competition called the Hoadley's. National Battle of the Bands, I think that's what it was called. We won in 1968, and part of the prize was a trip to uh, England. And, um, you know, we already were signed to EMI, but another part of the trip was uh, recording sessions at uh, at Abbey Road. So, yeah, it was the groove became massively huge, and um, we just toured nonstop for a couple of years and um, became very, very successful. We only had one album, and... Uh, Four or five singles, I think. But, uh, yeah, very, very popular group in Australia. Was that quite a common thing, the formula? I think they were a New Zealand group and they were also signed to Parlophone and then ended up coming over. What was the relationship between if you were signed to the likes of EMI over in Australia or New Zealand and the company over in England? Was there, was there much contact between the two or was it almost like starting again when you got to England? No, it was there was a familiarity in those days. I think EMI was EMI International, uh, as far as Australia went as well. The guy who produced our album was a, an Australian guy called David Mackay uh, in Australia, and uh, he ended up going to England and producing for EMI in England. And I remember that when we ended up in England, uh, he he produced some of our stuff uh, at Abbey Road as well. So. There just seemed to be a tie, and I'm a little bit out of the loop of the information about the record company stuff. David Mackay produced us in um, for EMI in Australia, and he also produced us for uh, EMI in England. So there just must have been a natural tie-up between the companies, you know. Shut your heart, go deep down low 
The Wind was released as a single by the Groove. That was a different direction. That seemed to be a bit more in the spirit of what was going on in England at the time. It was a bit more rock sound. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, I think that we'd run our course with the, with the soul thing when we realised there were so many good soul bands in London. Right. And we changed direction pretty quickly at one point. We all became pretty heavily influenced by the American group, the band. And uh, we made a... a we made a record after the group broke up. We made an album uh, with a, a new name called Eureka Stockade, and that was very band-influenced. But with the wind, one of the key things about the groove was that Peter was a pretty dynamic singer, and um, he was looking for a little bit more than just the soul genre, the R&B genre. And also Tweed was uh, a really incredible organ player, and I think he was looking for something too outside of the mainstream of the soul R&B organ bits and pieces. And um, we all loved what Procol Harum did with Wider Shade of Pale. Mm. When I listened to the track, I think it was a little bit of an influence to do something that was a little bit more that orientated, pop-wise, rock-wise, you know, to let Tweed have a bit of a go. The organ's pretty predominant. It was a great song and it was a, a great direction for the band to go in. It was an experiment. Pity that it didn't create a bit more of a wave that we could have kept on going. But um, we were sort of going in a bit of a different direction at that point. Like I said, I think we were heading a little bit more down a sort of a country rock vein, you know. The new compilation, the second CD that has got the whole of the unreleased Eureka Stockade album as well. So that shows another side to the group. Yeah, I, I distinctly remember that in 1969, before we left, we did a big show with the Twilights, who had, who, had, who had won the National Battle of the Bands a couple of years before us and had gone to England. And they didn't didn't work out for them either, and they came back to Australia. But they were going to be doing this big concert with us, and we got together at the hotel in Sydney before we were going to do this show. And I remember sitting down with Terry Britton, who was the guitar player, and the Twilights, who also went on to be quite a successful songwriter, yeah. writing for Tina Turner and stuff. But I remember the guys in the in the Twilights. It was the first time I'd smoked weed, pot, you know, marijuana. Yeah. So we we all rolled up and we all started smoking. And, um, and they said, "Oh, have you heard have you heard of this group called the Band?" And I said, "No, never heard of the Band." And they said, "Oh, yeah, they've been playing backing Bob Dylan, and they played the uh, the Big Pink album and the Band album." 
it completely blew us all away. Levon Helm, the drummer in the band, became my biggest influence of all time as a drummer. They became the biggest influence, I think, that swept through the groove when we got to London. And so the Eureka Stockade album is really pretty much based around, it's got some, you know, it's got the soul influences of that uh, sort of lingered over from the groove, but it's got a very strong pronounced presence of uh, trying to uh, be a little bit being influenced by that American group, the band, actually. It was a good album, the, the Eureka Stock, I think. Everybody threw songs. Uh, it was an original album, I think, from all the songs from everybody, and everybody shared. It was the first song. It was the first, first song I'd written that was ever recorded, which wasn't such a great song, <laughs> but uh, called I Ain't Living on Easy Street, I think. And um, Peter, I didn't sing on any of these songs, but uh, it was a great opportunity to start to dig into that creative side of uh, writing capabilities of the groove. and. Everybody was inspiring. James Byrne, the bass player in the group, he was especially a strong influence um, in getting me writing. And we wrote quite a few songs together, actually, which was um, which was fun. But, yeah, it was a little bit too little too late by the time we got to the Eureka Stockade album. And I think there might have been a single, but the album never came out. It was inspiring for us, but I, I don't think it was quite strong enough in the in the in the marketplace to make a dent, you know, we were up against too many music was exploding. There was hundreds of bands.
you mentioned before about recording with with Morris for his solo album. Was the group Tintin a progression from playing with Morris, or was it just that you were all friends and Tintin evolved separately? Once again, it's sort of slightly sketchy. When the groove broke up, I sort of remember the groove breaking up, and um, I, w- I connected with Steve Kipner from Stephen the Board, who had arrived in London, and we started hanging out. And um, he had mentioned that uh, he was starting a group. He was with uh, another another Steve, Steve Groves, who had come from a Melbourne band called the Kinetics, and the both Steves were in London. And I think a few things had evolved, but they started out to be Steve and Stevie, and that was there was a connection with, with the Bee Gees and with Morris because of the Bee Gees and because of the history that Steve had had with his father, Matt, and the Bee Gees in Australia. And so there was just sort of a, a connection, I think, that happened in London with Steve Kipner and the Bee Gees. Once again, Morris was looking for maybe to produce people, and um, I think when Steve and Stevie didn't work out, they became Tintin, and at that time... The groove had broken up and I was looking for something else to do and was hanging out with Steve in London. He said, why don't you get involved with Tintin? And at that point, I remember Morris, the Bee Gees had broken up and uh, Morris was recording a solo album. And uh, I remember getting a call from him to say, I heard that you're in London. Do you want to come down and do some recording with me? And so I ended up recording um a whole solo album with Morris, which I was called The Loner from memory, and I don't think yeah. it was ever released. But that was sort of the tie-up with getting involved with Tintin, which led to Morris hearing about me being in London, and he was looking for a drummer. And It was sort of interesting, you know, because Colin, who I replaced in Stephen the Board, had become a Bee Gee. Yes. And then, for some reason or another, they laid him off after Robin left and... From my memory, I got called up to come in. Morris called me up to finish off recording Cucumber Castle. But uh, and I, I sort of vaguely remember playing on a few tracks on that, but I'm not in any credits or anything to do with that, so I can't really say what I remember clearly about that. But um, I got involved in that, that's for sure. But that led on to working with Morris, and it led on to working with Tintin, which Morris was producing with his brother-in-law, Billy Laurie, and... There was a tie-up with getting involved with Morris through Tintin and through Morris, he was producing Tintin. So sort of one thing led to another at that point in time. It was a great time to get involved with Morris Gibb and um, Steve Kittner again and Steve Groves and and also Carl Grosman got involved with Tintin again and he was another member of Steve and the Board. So it was a brother thing. It was a really a really nice time for me. Tintin recorded at least two albums and there were singles and, and there was some success as well. Tintin's material is consistently strong. And so you've singled out the cavalry's coming from the Astral Taxi album. It's a beautiful song I remember. I had nothing to do with the first Tintin album. Steve played most of the drums on that. I think they just got lost in the wash at one point. Yeah. Just with RSO, their record company and management and Abigail, their publishing company, just things sort of started to, yeah, got a little bit lost in the in the maze of what was going on. But I, I remember Cavalry's Coming. I remember, and as much as it's got no drums on it apart from the bass drum, I remember just uh, being taken by the, by the song. And I can sort of still remember recording it. <laughs> there was a great single released by Tintin that Carl Grossman wrote with the two Steves. 
called Shana, right. which was an amazing single. Tintin was a very creative period for me. I was encouraged immensely by Steve Kittner to start writing songs. And I actually had an A-side released. Um, it was my first vocal ever, I think, on any sort of recording, a song called Come On Over Again. Once again, it wasn't a very good song, but The Cavalry Coming is a lovely song and it still, it still stands up today to me as I listen to it. We do move into the BGS, and we've got the wonderful lonely days. Some sources talk about Robin and Morris getting together and playing with you in in the middle of 1970, and this being before Barry was on board. Do you recall that period? Vaguely, I can't say I clearly recall it. I just got pretty involved with Morris um, and on the on his album, and that sort of probably slipped into doing a few things with Robin, who had decided to come back and get involved again with the Bee Gees. I think uh, because I've been working with Morris, I can't really recall clearly sessions with Robin and Morris together. I just recall when when the, when the Bee Gees decided to reform, 
I was just sitting in the drum seat, drummer's seat, you know. I'd been done a lot of recording with Morris especially. And so when it came around that they wanted to go back into the studio as the Bee Gees, it was like I was just there in the right place at the right time, basically. I sort of remember the recording of Lonely Days and um I still remember it was just it was just Morris and me. Um I think it was Barry doing the, the guide vocal. A lot of the songs were just recorded with either me and Barry or me and Morris on piano. Right. Or Barry on guitar. And that was pretty much the basic track. From memory, Morris pretty much always overdubbed his bass parts. And uh and Lonely Days was a track that happened so quickly. I think that's the third take, maybe even the second take. I remember thinking it's a little bit out of sorts. I remember saying, Can we do it again a couple more times? I was just sort of getting used to it. When I listen to it, I'm still a little bit jumpy about the fact that I wish I had a had a chance to record it a couple more times with them, a couple more takes. I would have liked to have settled in a little bit at the end. But, you know, Barry was, he blew the roof off it with his, um, yeah. the Lonely Day section at the end. It, it sounded like, you know, it sounded like John Lennon was in the room. It was incredible. Very inspiring session, Lonely Days. It was a, an unusual song, a beautiful song, and a, I love the change of the tempos and uh, the rocking end to it. Once again, it just shows the um, the virtuoso and the prolificness of the Bee Gees talent. You know, they're amazing songwriters. They were still finding their way personally and creatively. On two years on, there was a it was still an unusual time for them to be back together as brothers. You know, sort of navigating their way. Yeah, I was just a session player on two years on. It wasn't until we gone back gone to America we toured America promoting um the two years on album and the Lonely Days single, which became massive hit. I think it got number three or something. Yeah. It wasn't until we got back from that American tour that we'd started recording on the Trafalgar album and um I remember the brothers in IBC Studios came up to me and um said we wanna do you want to become a BG? <laughs> <laughs> so it was sort of it was sort of during the Trafalgar album that uh, I was asked to join the band as a sort of an official member, as, as it was, which was a shock, surprise, really. I was pretty happy being in Tintin, though. I had something in Tintin that the Bee Gees had in the Bee Gees, you know, they were brothers that had been doing what they were doing for a decade before I came on board. and It was an unusual time for me to be asked to join the Bee Gees. I was very friendly with Carl and Steve Kipner and Steve Groves and John Valance in Tintin and we all felt like brothers. We were all getting ready to roll. Then I was asked to join the Bee Gees, and then Tim Tim were going to be to support on the, the second tour to America to promote um, Broken Heart and, um, and the Trailer album. And um, I was told that I was going to just going to be playing in the Bee Gees. I wasn't going to be able to play in the support band, which was Tim Tim. And it was a little bit disappointing at the time. It was a surprise, you know, and. Uh, I remember talking to Steve Kipman saying, what do you think? I've been asking me to join them. Like, you know, like, I want to be with Tintin. And he said, are you kidding me? Like, the Bee Gees are one of the biggest bands in the world and you're being asked to join one of the biggest bands in the world. And I'm like, well, yeah, but still, you know. Hmm. Anyway, history, as it turned out, it did. It. The three brothers were meant to be. I wasn't meant to be. Sunshine, you brighten. 
It doesn't seem that much time between two years on, the States, huge success, before you were back in the studio very late 1970. One of the highlights, which doesn't get heard as much as it should, is Israel. I remember Israel because I remember thinking it was a sort of a strange, a strange sort of song. I'm not quite sure what Barry was thinking about Israel. The only thing I can think is that so many Jews were persecuted in the Second World War, you know, Israel. But the interesting thing about Israel, which is an interesting thing about a couple of the tracks on um, 
for Trafalgar album is that Barry made the lyrics up on the spot. He had no notes to Israel before he did the vocal. He he sang the first thing that came into his head. And um, I remember we really rocked. The track really rocked. And um, it was a pretty spontaneous take. And the further we got into it, the more we belted it out. Again, it was me and Barry would have been playing guitar. Morris could have been on the piano. It was very simple sort of instrumentation, the way the Bee Gees used to record. Like I said, I always sort of remember Morris overdubbing bass, and the songs were always recorded either with me, with Morris on piano, and Barry on guitar. It's very, it was maybe unusual for for Barry and Morris to be playing together with the drummer, which was me. And I'd always come back usually on the um, orchestral sessions and and listen to the tracks after the orchestra would go down, and it was like, wow, you know, <laughs> it was like a fully fully blown production, but. Um, but yeah, Israel is one of my favourite tracks on Trafalgar simply because it, it's incredibly authentic, recorded in the moment. I'm, I don't think there was a second take of Israel. I know there wasn't a second take on the vocal. I loved Barry in those days. He's sort of, he was like Otis Redding, his soulful rock, soulful voice. He was without a doubt the best singer I'd, I'd played drums for. Robin too. I'm not taking Robin out of the, out of the equation here. He was, um, there's no one like Robin Gibb when it comes to a vocal. But the Trafalgar was it once again it was an interesting journey. Though it was very a very experimental album. They were sort of wanting to break away from some of the stuff they'd done on their their, their albums prior to Trafalgar. And the two years on album was really they were treading on eggshells a little bit between each other. During that they were getting to know each other again and familiarise their closeness and love for each other as brothers and um but the Trafalgar album was a uh, everyone was getting a chance, you know, Morris was getting a chance to sing, which he didn't usually get much of a chance to do. And and uh, his musicianship, to me, it blew my mind. He was a brilliant musician, Morris Gibb. He was one guy, he could come into a studio, he could pull a set of strings off a guitar, he could start putting strings on, and he didn't need, he didn't need to find a tuner to uh, find the tone, he could just find it on the Trafalgar album. Everything you hear is, is Morris Gibb, apart from some guitar playing from Barry. And I think Alan Kendall, I think he started getting involved. Guitarist. Yeah, the lead guitarist, Alan Kendall. I think he started getting involved on the recordings uh, on the album. But but Morris was, uh, he was uh, he, he took the lion's share of all the all the musicality on the Trafalgar album. And most of the, um, all of the two years on album as well, you know. I have a lot of respect for Morris Gibb as a musician. But yeah, I love Israel. Another one that's like that was um, Don't I Live Inside Myself. That was also another one of my favourites. That was a real experimental one where it was like Barry decided he was going to just sort of sing some of the stuff. He had a few notes, but he was just going to sing the first thing that came into his head. But it was a, a very interesting lyric, Don't I Live Inside Myself, very introspective. And um, that was nice, but... Um, when we were working on the song, <laughs> and I was like, well, what do I play? And Morris was like, you just play whatever you want to play. And it ended up being a bit of a drum fest if I don't want to live inside myself. But I had some good memories of, uh, of the Trafalgar album. We really were a, a four-piece band. We really were feeding off each other. And I never really had got involved in the vocals side of the Bee Gees or even the, the co-writing side of the Bee Gees. But as a drummer, I'm sort of proud of my input on the Trafalgar album. 
This is a period where the Bee Gees were having more success in the US than they were in the UK. US number one with How Can You Mend a Broken Heart. That must have been incredibly exciting. Oh, it was. It was incredibly exciting for everybody. I think that Lonely Days did pretty well, and I can't sort of remember what singles came out. You know, the interesting thing about How Can You Mend a Broken Heart was it didn't even chart in, in England. 
Yeah. It brought out something that I saw that the Bee Gees had. They had this really sort of love for, Barry had this real love for country music. I remember recording um, Broken Heart with Barry and um, he just said, I got this song. There's a country singer, I'm not sure, I don't think it's Jim Reeves, it's somebody Reeves, a country singer. And uh, Barry was a big fan of this country singer and he mentioned that at the time of the recording of Broken Heart. But uh, from memory, he and I just did it together, guitar and drums, the original tape. Morris could have been on bass, but I don't think he was on piano. But it's a masterful track. One of the favourite things I ever did with the Bee Gees. And yeah, to get to number one, I think it was on that tour, the, after it went to number one, and I think it was either in Nashville or Memphis on the tour, it was the hugest. We played a big stadium. I think it was 30,000 or something. And I don't think the Bee Gees had ever seen any success like that in America until Broken Heart. And it was either in Memphis or Nashville. They sold out two nights. And I remember all the country people coming backstage. And then we went to this huge party at Roy Orbison's house. And all the country people were there, all the stars, the country stars. Of course, everybody was a little bit out of it, including me. So I can't really clearly remember whatever, but I remember it being, boy, this is, they really tapped into one of the biggest musical markets in the world, the country music market in America. We opened with To Love Somebody, which was from the uh, live at Festival Hall show in, in Melbourne in July 71. So it'd be great to have How Can You Mend a Broken Heart from that concert as well. So going back as a group with all that success to Australia again, must have been a really, really fantastic moment for you all. Yeah, well, the first tour, the first tour, which I think was in early 1971, before Broken Heart, I think it was just the Lonely Days tour from memory. It was the first time they'd been back since leaving in 67, and uh, it was the first time I'd been back since leaving in 69. And it was a homecoming of sorts for them, really, and it was definitely a homecoming for me. But it was an amazing tour. I think we sold out a couple nights in Festival Hall in Melbourne and uh, I remember being so nervous. I was shaking terribly on the drum kit. My parents were in the audience, my relatives and my brother and, <laughs> and my friends and everyone was there. And um, it was a real good moment for the for the Brothers Gibb as well to come back to Australia after, you know, really becoming huge international stars. I remember the press conferences at the hotel in Melbourne with my parents there they were, they were so proud and, um, yeah, it was sort of an unusual, unusual experience. You know, all of a sudden I wanted to get involved in music. When I look back at 64, 65 and some of the little bands I played in and then Steve and the board and then the groove and then going overseas and coming back as a member of one of the biggest bands in the world was, uh, was a trip. Surreal, really. Was everything a man could want to do I could never see
been the last single that was released when you were still with the group is that right yeah i think so i think a couple came out after i left the group like i think alive yeah was the last single that was released by the beaches that i played on my world stands out as one because we actually made a, a video clip of it which is, which is available online and i'm in that video clip it must have been early 1972 when you left. What was going on in that period that led to you leaving, do you recall? It was a pretty trippy time to join the brothers when I did. Robin had left for his own personal reasons, and then when they came back together again, there was a lot of sort of shuffling going on between them. They were sort of finding their own space and time as individuals, but they all were living the high lifestyle, you know, they all had big houses, they all had Rolls Royces and they were successful musicians in their own right. And and I think for Robin, he was a bit 
disenchanted about the fact uh, because he'd had I'd started a joke in Massachusetts. I think the thing was he think he wanted to be a little bit more inclusive in the lead vocal aspect of the band, but that was sort of really 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 shuffling between themselves and it's no secret that everyone everyone was involved in drugs and alcohol big time you know everybody had problems with them. Morris and Robin and Barry, they, uh, I've heard them all talk about it, so it's not like I can mean to say anything about how it was a topsy-turvy situation for everybody. And even through the, the tours, you know, it was still topsy-turvy. They were still gravitating towards getting to know each other, and the success was a little bit hit and miss. As much as Broken Heart was a massive hit, they were still sort of finding finding ground with, with being brothers again and on tour Robin we had to cancel or Robin didn't show for a couple of gigs because of his drug problems. Morris was very difficult to deal with because of his alcohol problems. Mm. What can happen with an alcoholic as maybe a lot of people know that when people drink too much they can become another person mm. and um, Morris became another person when he drank too much and as much as I loved them all they became difficult to deal with uh, on one level, and my behavioural patterns were also affected by drugs and alcohol. And uh, before I joined the Bee Gees, I'd married and had a wife and a daughter. And during the Bee Gees, things had become really chaotic, uh, travelling internationally. And I think these days people term it as having mental health problems. I started having problems because of my own drug and alcohol intake, and I left my wife left my child and um, just flying women around the world and living this rather strange lifestyle. And all of a sudden it came to the head after the second uh, American tour and the second Australian tour. And I collapsed in New Zealand and didn't know who I was anymore. I'd lost touch with myself and I needed to retreat. I needed to back away from that lifestyle and it wasn't so much anymore. I wasn't sort of so much looking at the fact that I was playing in this huge band. I just needed help and I wanted to get back to my, my wife and child again. And so I decided the only way to do that was to pull the plug on the lifestyle I was living and um, make a change. And um, I remember being influenced by the Beatles and by their their search for their own inner peace, especially George Harrison. Mm. And uh, I remember their involvement in the, the Indian spiritual side of finding inner peace. And I became interested in that even before the Bee Gees and I ended up getting a mantra and and I remember one of the last on one of the last shows I did with the Bee Gees. We were in um would have been early February in February nineteen seventy two. I think it was Holland. We were doing a show with the Beach Boys and Johnny Cash. It was leading up to the we were on the we were on the road doing a short tour. We were gonna be doing a, a concert coming up in Rome. Anyway, it was sort of interesting at, at this gig we're doing with the Beach Boys, who are incredible, by the way, mm. to do a gig with them. I love them, and to watch them, sit back and watch them was uh, watch them was incredible. They pulled uh, Carl Wilson and Alan Jardine and Mike Love aside because they'd all been to they'd all been meditating and they'd all been to India and they stayed at the ashram of the Beatles. And I, I remember pulling them aside and saying, "What was it like? And what's the meditation like?" and they just said it's really cool. Everything's good. We're getting a lot of peace, getting a lot of a lot of benefit from it. So I started finding myself becoming interested in having a go, you know, like perceiving that world and seeing what could come of it. 
And by the time we got to Italy after that show in uh, Holland, I'd become pretty crazy, pretty freaked out. I needed help, really, you know, in the same way the brothers needed help at some point. And um, I thought that the best thing I could do was to stop, leave the band and find some sanity somehow in the lot in my life, which had become pretty insane, you know. And so I decided that uh, maybe I'd try and follow a spiritual life, lifestyle of some kind for a little while and see how that turned out. Actually, I remember on the way back from Rome, we are on the plane and I said to Barry, I, I said, you know, it's just become really, really difficult, Barry. You know, I'm finding myself having a difficult time. And I think I'd seen certain aspects of what it was like to become an incredibly successful person, to be having first-class lifestyle, hit records number one in America. I, I think I'm the first Australian musician to get a number one in America. <laughs> mm. It just sort of made me a little bit feel a little bit crazy. I, I needed to break away from it. It was one of the best things that I've done in my life. When I look at some of the BG covers and albums and the music that followed, I'm just not in that picture. Yeah, It was good to get back with my wife and, and child and um, just solidify a bit of sanity in my life to proceed from with what happened from there.
So you went back to Australia. You did release material in the mid to late 70s, and we've next got Wild Night. So yeah. talk about that period and how you gathered that material together and, and, and what was happening. After I left the Bee Gees early 1972, I sort of just took a hiatus away from mainstream pop rock and roll world. I sort of lost interest in the fact that you should be somebody. Because when I was leaving the Bee Gees, to be honest, Robert Stigwood, they didn't want me to leave and they thought it was money. And um, Robert Stigwood sent a limo for me and he invited me out to his house and sat down with me and, and said, you know, we want to put you on a full royalty. The, the boys want you to stay. And the, these are literally his words. He said, you'd be a millionaire in six months. And he said, I'll put £25,000 cash on the table right now. Gosh. The classic line was, it's, <laughs> it's not the money, Robert. <laughs> I just needed out of the situation. and So I went on to a bit of a hiatus and I did go to India. I did stay in an ashram. I did get involved in, in meditation and that sort of carried over for the next couple of years of my life, you know. I just sort of got involved with some other musicians, did some underground projects. I started to get involved in writing a little bit more seriously, taking that on, thinking it was something I wanted to do, thinking perhaps I could sing Perhaps I'd become a solo artist and did a few demos here and there. Anyway, I came to the attention of um, a sort of a small-time label in Melbourne, Australia called Indigo Records, and uh, they'd heard a few demos that I'd done and uh, wanted me to make an album. And So I started recording, and some of the songs, I didn't have enough strong songs of my own to record, so there was a couple of uh, musician mates I was I was friendly with, and one of them was Carl Grossman from Tintin. I recorded a song of his, and another one was a, a budding uh, singer-songwriter girl called Kim O'Leary, who I befriended, and to this day I live with her, <laughs> which is sort of unusual. Yeah. And she wrote um, a couple of songs which I recorded. One of the songs was Wild Night, and um, it was going to become a single. And so there was a video clip made of it, but the record company went bust, and so... I sort of went down the tube with them. The album that I recorded was never released, and uh, but a few video clips were made, and there's a couple of videos online, I think, on my YouTube channel. But Wild Night's just such a great song. Mm. I think it's going to come out on a, a Best of Jeff Bridgeford down the line. It was a good take, and I recorded it with um, some of my best mates, um, Lindsay Field on uh, vocals and guitar, and Kim O'Leary, Ross Hannaford, a guitar player from a very successful, incredible band called Daddy Cool, who were the Australian version of the Rolling Stones, and he sadly passed away a couple of years ago. And um, Joe Crate, an amazing bass player. So uh, those people that I played with on Wild Night, I think it was recorded in 76 in Melbourne. Um, I'm still close friends with all these people. Weary trip. 
Next we've got Mark Gillespie in Ring of Truth. So you were playing drums, so I, th- I think we're in the early to mid-80s now. Yeah, 1982 or 83, that would have been. Once again, from 70 to seven, from 77, I left Australia and sort of did a whole bunch of stuff around the world musically, bits and pieces. It was mainly underground, nothing that was really high profile in the music business. But I came back to Australia in 82 and... Um, started hanging out with Ross Hannaford and Joe Creighton again, who I'd been playing with in my underground world. And um, they'd been picked up by this Australian singer-songwriter called Mark Gillespie. He was sort of the Bob Dylan Lou Reed of Australia. He released a couple of albums in the early 80s, and he was really quite 
famous and successful. And when I came back to Australia in 82, Joe and Ross were playing for him. So he was going out on the road and I got asked to play drums for him. So that's how I got involved in Mark. And I was really surprised, you know, he got these huge audiences in the pubs and clubs that I played with him. And um, we supported Joe Cocker. But um, I was sort of surprised, you know, the... In a Mark Gillespie gig, you'd see members of Australian bands, Australian bands in excess of Midnight Oil. You'd see these guys turning up in the audience to check Mark out. I didn't play on his first two albums, but I played on his third album called Ring of Truth, which was just me and Mark and uh, a few high-profile backing vocalists, Renee Gaya, Renetta Fields and Lisa Bade. A great album. It never really saw true light of day. He found it difficult to deal with the success that came his way. I remember one day he was going to, was sitting in a hotel lobby waiting for Rolling Stone to come and do an interview with him and he decided there in the moment that he didn't want to do it anymore. Anyway, he ended up going to Bangladesh and getting involved in um, humanitarian work, helping people in poverty, helping children in schools and, and that's where he ended up dying. A few years ago, he passed away there as a charity worker. But uh, he was a great singer-songwriter. He had all the stuff that people like Bob Dylan, Van Morrison, Lou Reed had. You know, he, he had it. Run out of the 
So we've got two of your solo tracks as our final tracks, and the first being Easy to Love. So by the, the late 80s, you did start to more focus on writing your own material and recording it, and I think Easy to Love comes from that period, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, after Mark Gillespie, I'd done some quite a lot of tours with him. I also did some touring with a massively successful Australian band called Goanna. And when I was on tour with Goanna in 83, we were touring around Australia and we came to a place called Byron Bay, which we were doing a tour, which become, which has become a very, very successful, well-known location. And um, in 83, when I was on tour with Goanna, we, but I remember going to Byron Bay and uh, getting out of the, the car we were in and standing on the foreshore and looking out to the beach and I just had this epiphany that this is where I needed to be. This is the place I needed to live. And um, in 83, 84, I moved to Byron Bay and pretty much gave up everything. I gave up all music, playing music. I decided I wasn't going to play drums anymore. I wasn't going to tour anymore. I needed a long break. I hadn't stopped since leaving Australia in 1969. I said I was going to learn how to surf and learn how to cook and uh, just become a housebody, which I sort of did. But um, I got lured back into playing by a, a local band, Byron Bay band called Hip Pocket. And then Mark Gillespie wanted to do another tour in 86, I think it was. So I went out and did a bit of stuff in 86. But when I came back to Byron Bay, I once again decided I wasn't going to do that anymore as a touring drummer. And uh, I decided to have a go at writing songs. And I hooked up with an Australian artist painter, poet, writer, Susie Spears. And uh, we started writing some songs together. And Easy to Love is one of those songs we wrote. And uh, it got recorded in Melbourne. It's, uh, it's one take. It's a live vocal. It was the uh, the guide vocal that I did at the time of the, the first take of the song. So I'm sort of proud of Easy to Love. I started a band called Modern Life with a drummer and a bass player. And... Uh, we played a gig for Greenpeace. I got involved in the environmental movement, the Wilderness Society and Greenpeace, and we were doing fundraisers. And we did some fundraisers in Melbourne with, with Crowded House. To this day, the best band I've seen live on stage ever. And during one of these nights, one night with Crowded House, the Crowded House engineer came up and said, you guys are so good. Have you ever done any recording? And I said, no, we've never done any recording as Modern Life. He said, well, I have a studio. I'm an engineer at a studio. And uh, I'd like to offer you the opportunity to come in and record for nothing and see if we can put an album together. That's how Easy to Love got, got recorded. He wanted us to play down some songs in a session one night. And Easy to Love was played down as a guide track for him to listen to. And that guy track with that live vocal is what came out on, is what eventually came out. No green hill, far away. No make believe. No hide and seek, no in the sun. No wait and see. Love, easy to love, yeah, easy to love. 
final track is never give up the reprise version so an ending i think on a positive note so when does that song date from because the thing i've noticed that certainly over the last decade you've managed to go into your archives and and release material from a, a range of period your recordings yeah well never give up was recorded from 90 1990 to 2000 i sort of took another hiatus from the music industry but on one level of being an artist or a drummer and uh, a friend of mine in Los Angeles was involved in the CEO for a video production company and um, he asked me if I would like to be musical director for a video production company based in LA which I did for 10 years in, in between 90 and 2000 and when I came back to Australia in 2001 after that a gig was over I decided once again I was going to start writing songs and uh, Never Give Up came out of a songwriting session that I did, that I was writing. I started writing on my own at that point. And so it was a sort of a personal affirmation to myself to never give up. And um, hmm. it was a song that I recorded in Melbourne in 2001 or 2002 from memory with uh, incredible keyboard player, Ollie from uh, a great Australian band called Cat Empire. It just sort of hung around. I put it out on a solo Jeff Bridgeford EP a few years ago when I was going through the archives and, and picked it out. I thought, you know, this sounds pretty good. It's uh, not too bad. So I decided to wrap a video around it and uh, just put it out on a Jeff Bridgeford EP. Which I think I decided to release it around about the COVID period when COVID first hit. Never Give Up became a bit of a positive mantra for us all at that point in time to not give up on ourselves. Jeff, it's been amazing to talk to you and, and cover so much material way back in the 60s, pre-BGs. We covered The Groove and what you've done after that and, and your newer solo material. It's been brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. I know people can look you up and you've got a band camp and can find out more as well. Yes, Facebook and YouTube channel. And yes, Jason, thanks so much for your interest. It's good and it takes care. Bye.
give up on yourself now Never, ever give up Don't you ever give up now Never, ever give up Don't give up on yourself now Never, ever give up Cause you might find You're not losing your mind And those who love you Always be on your side If the wall Yeah, if the walls come crashing down Around you, surround you And you think that you can't be found uh, Don't you ever give up now Never, ever give up Don't give up on yourself now Never, ever give up Can't you see Enough is enough of the pain To be or not to be Well it's the same old story again You gotta find yourself Inside yourself Listen to your heart Let go of yesterday And make a new start You can do it If you try oh, You can do it You know why There's more to you than meets the eye yourself now never ever give up don't you ever give up now never ever give up don't give up on yourself now never ever give up no don't you ever give up now never ever give up don't give up on yourself now never Never give up Don't you ever give up now Never ever give up Don't give up on yourself now Never ever give up No Don't you ever give up now Never ever give up Don't give up on yourself now Never ever give up Never ever give up Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. 
Thank you.